Today we continue our series called Dear Church. We have been taking the season of Lent uh, to focus our hearts and our minds on Jesus and on uh, the words in the letter to the church in Corinth. Uh, Next week on Easter, we will finish up this letter uh, with chapters 15 and 16 where Paul will talk about the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body, and we will be celebrating Resurrection Day. So once again, I want to just encourage you to uh, make sure you celebrate Resurrection Day um, here up on the mountain or if you're on vacation, go find yourself a church um, and go celebrate Jesus with other believers. This morning we will be in chapters 13 and 14. Chapters 13 and 14, if you've ever been to a wedding, there's a very good possibility that you have heard chapter 13 read at that wedding. It's known as the love chapter, all right? Uh, But it's actually better in the context that we're sitting in today. Uh, because this was a letter written to a church. It was not a letter written to a newlywed couple who was about to get married for premarital counseling, right? Even though we use this passage sometimes for that. And so in the context of today, this letter written for the church is actually a better context for us to engage with chapters 13 and 14 of the first letter to the Corinthians. I will read the first three verses to begin. And yet, I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak with the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have faith that can move mountains, just like we sang about, but don't have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but but do not have love, I gain nothing. Paul says, dear Church, let love be your foundation. Let love be your foundation. In chapter 1, or the beginning of the letter, uh, Paul notices that the church in Corinth is a gifted church, right? In the introduction of this letter, he says that he notices to them, they're abundant in gifts. They're a very gifted church. They have lots of gifts. And he spent a good chunk of what you heard last week with Pastor Nielsen talking about those specific gifts and saying, yes, you are a gifted church. There are lots of gifts. There are teachers. There are prophets. There are apostles. There are miracles. My favorite. There's the gift of helps. Okay. I love that gift. I'm like, if you got nothing else, you can help. You got the gift of help, right? Of guidance, kinds of tongues, right? So he's saying to them, hey, you're a well-gifted church. You've got lots of gifts, but I want to pause, he says. I want to pause right now because I want you to understand that love needs to be your foundation. 
See, what seems to be happening in this church is that because they're so gifted, they're struggling with something that we often struggle with when we have certain gifts in our life, and that is pride. Right? This church is struggling with pride because they are so gifted. There's a growing hierarchy that is being seen in the conversation last week about the Lord's Supper and who's getting together and whose houses and who's getting invited over to whose houses. Um, there's a hierarchy around the ranking of gifts that they're saying, oh, these gifts, they're so, so important, but these gifts, not so important. And there's this ranking that's going on among these gifts, especially the more supernatural ones, which he's going to go into in depth today. Uh, prophecy, tongues, healing, etc. So he wants to paint a picture for them. He wants to say, this is so great that you have so many gifts, but if you don't have love, here's the picture. You're just... You're just a clanging gong. You ever, you ever been to like one of those restaurants where they're maybe flipping food and maybe they've got a gong in the corner and they hit that thing and it goes bong, right? That's what, that's what Paul's thinking about. He's saying, if you're not dealing with love, if love is not your foundation for these conversations, then you're just making noise. You're just a noise maker, is what he's saying. You're just a clanging cymbal, a resounding gong. And he's saying, so I want to I want to show you a more excellent way. I want to show you a better way, a foundational way, so you're not just dealing with noise, but that so that love is actually the foundation for this conversation. Um, and this sounds really great, doesn't it? Like uh, this does. It sounds really great. And, and, and it sounds like a Beatles song, right? All you need is love. Da, 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 da. Right? I mean, it sounds uh, amazing. Um, and it's something that I think we, we all conceptually grasp very quickly. We say, oh yeah, we, yes, absolutely. Right now, this is all we need. But I, th- I think it's more complicated than that. Can I be honest with you? Like, um, I like to talk about social media because it's part of a lot of our lives. Um, but social media is an interesting place, isn't it? You can put your opinions out there. You can put opinions of other people out there. Um, and you can, you can deal with those opinions or you can not deal with those opinions. You can do like I do and I go on like blocking sprees. I don't know if any of you do this, but like about once a month I'm like, I'm going to go on a blocking spree. And then I just start blocking people because um, I don't want to see their content for about a month. And then I give them some grace and I check them out again and then I block them again. That's just kind of how it works, right? So, <laughs> but everybody I think would agree that yes, love should be the, the foundation for all of our conversations, but practicing that, it seems hard. It seems hard. It seems like the spirit in which a lot of these conversations and culture are going on right now are not actually very loving. They're not. And and part of why I think they're not actually very loving is because I don't think we have a great definition of love. I think we have minimalistic views on love. I think we have emotive ideas about love. That love is when the princess and the prince meet and there are stars in their eyes and they dance together under the moonlight until her carriage turns into a a pumpkin and she loses a slipper and then he has to search the kingdom for her and then they ride off together in the sunset on their trusty steed. I think that's that's what we've relegated love to in some ways. I think also we've relegated love in other ways to just pure tolerance. I think we said love is tolerance. 
That if you actually love somebody, you'll just tolerate them. That you'll put up with them. That you'll tolerate their, their views. That you'll be tolerant in society. I think we, as a culture, have relegated the word love to the word tolerance. And that's not what Paul's talking about. Because Paul wants to go deeper than that. He wants to go further than that. And it shouldn't surprise us that our culture continues to make things rise into the shallows instead of down into the deep. Right? It shouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us that our culture continues to want to make um, these types of issues just really shallow instead of going into the depths of what God would want for our lives instead of showing us a more excellent way, as Paul would say. And so then the question is this. Well, what's the more excellent way? Right? That's a really important question for us. Well then, Paul, what is love? If love is supposed to be the foundation, if love is supposed to be um, how we navigate through this life, if love is supposed to be how we have these conversations about how we're gifted and how we're wired and, and, and like how God has created us to be, if we're going to have those conversations, then what is love, Paul? That's good that we asked. Paul would say this. We'll go 4, 13. We'll go uh, verses 4 through 13. Love is. So Paul's going to define it for us. This is what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I I put the childish ways behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in the mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Paul would say this, Dear church, let love be your foundation and your way of life. Your way of of life. See, Paul doesn't paint the picture that love is just an emotion or that love is tolerance or that love is just something really simple. What he unpacks is that love is a way of life. Notice the words even that he's using here, right? Patient, kind, not envying, not boasting. So it's not proud, it's humble. It's not, love honors others. Love is not easily angered. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It protects always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, always. It never, ever fails. See, Paul would say love is so much better than the world's definitions that it has been given. It's so much better and it's so much 
harder, right? I mean, just do the checklist here, right? I, I, this is how I kind of use it when I do, when I do sermons uh, for weddings. I, I, I encourage the uh, husband and wife to say, will I be patient? Will I be kind? Will I not envy or boast? Will I be humble? Am I not self-seeking or not easily angered? Will I not keep record of wrong see see paul is saying this is a way of life this is actionable love is actionable it's doable it's something that you live into and that's amazing and it's also very very difficult i mean you should look at this passage we should look at this passage every once in a while and go am i kind am i patient do I not keep a record of wrongs? Oh, that one's super convicting. Any anybody here? Just be honest with me, okay? Be honest, okay? How many of you like you keep records of wrongs? Maybe you don't tell anybody, but like you're like I keep I keep a secret record of wrongs, and I know what the score is, right? These these are my scorekeepers in the room, right? You're like I'm I'm keeping track, I'm keeping score. You've done eight bad things and said eight bad things to me and I've done nine so I'm behind right now, but if I do one good thing and then you do a bad thing, maybe we even up. I mean, this is hard, isn't it? This is super convicting for me. I read through this list and I think, man, am I am I, am I kind? Like am I kind when I Am I easily angered? Like, man, I got kids. So yeah, I get angry. I'm, Daddy gets angry. But Paul is challenging us. He's not, he's not just saying this is simply saying this is the way you should live. Every minute, every morning, you should wake up and say, am I going to live a life of love? Not just in one moment. Not just in one Facebook post or in one social media tweet. That's not the point, Paul would say. Yeah, you should live there, but he would say all of the ways of your life should be loving. This is a way of life. He says you've got to follow it. Um, this, this is great language. In, in fact... Um, the early followers in the Christian church, these folks, were actually called followers of the way. Isn't that interesting? They weren't actually called Christians for a while. They were actually called followers of the way. And they didn't sit around going, hey, which church are you going to this week? They didn't say that, right? What they did is that they recognized that they were the church. And being the church was being a follower of the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is the way of love. I mean, if you look at this, you can see Jesus, right? Love, you could say Jesus is what? Patient. Jesus is what? Kind. Jesus is not envy. Jesus didn't never boasted. He was not proud. In fact, he was so humble, he relegated himself to death on a cross for us. He does not dishonor others. He honored others. He was not self-seeking. He sought others' best. He was not easily angered. He kept no record of wrongs. He always delighted in the truth, always protected, always trust, always hoped, always persevered. Jesus never, ever fails. 
And so church, we, we say this here at Big Sacred Fellowship, whether you've been here for a while or, or for a short while, we make it really, really simple. We say that being a Christian and being a part of this body is simply about passionately following Jesus together. You've heard me say this. If you've been around here, you've heard me say this over and over and over again. This is what we're all about. Passionately following Jesus together. And I am convinced if we would do a better job at this as a church, we would be shining examples of what Jesus actually looks like in a culture that is not showing much Jesus lately. Showing a lot of opinions. Showing a lot of self-seeking. Showing a lot of you're either on my team or their team. It's either us or them, could we live, could we possibly live in the way of love? Is it, is it possible that some of these conversations would fall to the bottom if we lived in the way of love? I think that's what Paul's insinuating here. He's saying, yeah, I know you got these conversations about gifts and you got these, these different conversations about who gets invited to whose house for these dinners and you got people showing up too early uh, and they're getting drunk on the, on the holy wine and, and, and on the Lord's dinner and like you're not thinking of others because you're not practicing the way of love and you guys are getting all worked up about this and you're sending me letters because you're very angry about it but I'm replying to you and I want you to say, listen, listen, live in the way of love and these things, they will fall to the bottom. He continues. Chapter 14. Follow the way of love. There he goes. He keeps going. Follow the way of love. And eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit. So he says, in the context of love, then we can talk about gifts, right? But let's not talk about gifts and then love is an after fact. Let's talk about love first and then we can talk about Gifts, eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. We'll unpack that in a second. For anyone who speaks in a tongue, we'll also unpack this in a second, does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, he's referring back to what he said earlier, right? Such as a pipe or harp, how will anyone know what the tune is being played unless there's a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet doesn't make a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in the tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in the tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. 
So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else who is now put in the position of an inquirer say amen to your thanksgiving since they don't know what you're saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it's written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but believers. So if the whole church comes together, and everyone speaks in tongues, and choirs or unbelievers come in, will they not say, you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in and everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and brought and are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their heart are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Paul continues by saying this, let your language lead you to worship. Let your language lead you to worship. Um, I'm I'm not going to take a straw poll uh, here, but some of you I know grew up in uh, a more charismatic background. Some of you grew up in, with, like, in the Assemblies of God or charismatic church where you would say, I, I've heard about this before, right? Some of you grew up in Presbyterian churches or, or um, what they call themselves the Frozen Chosen. I worked in one of those for a while. And that's like a badge of honor. They called themselves the Frozen Chosen, right? I grew up in Reformed circles where we didn't, we didn't talk about this kind of stuff very much. We definitely didn't preach about it a whole lot. Um, but I, I think regardless, we have something to learn here that we can all learn. And, and it has to do with language. It has to do with languages. It has to do with the word that they use in here of tongues. If you go back to chapter 13, verse 1, it says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding honor clanging symbol. We just read that, right? So he's saying, there is languages of men and of angels. Men and of Angels. And I want to unpack this word tongues for us a little bit. Okay? So one usage of the word tongues in the New Testament is when suddenly you got hooked on phonics like right now. That's just how it happened. Okay? So like I couldn't speak Spanish, but I would go down to Mexico and all of a sudden because of God's spirit, I could suddenly speak Spanish. Right? I just, I just, it worked on Fox work for me in three seconds, and now I can speak Spanish. That's just, it was, it's a miraculous gift. Uh, we see it early in the book of Acts. So Peter and the disciples are sitting around, and they're praying, and they're, they're waiting upon God to say, hey, what's, what's our next step? 
What are we going to do next? How can we uh, speak about Jesus and the resurrection? How can we share the gospel? And they're gathered in a place where there's a lot of people gathered from a lot of other cultures who speak different languages. And the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Tongues of fire seem to set upon their head in that moment as they're praying. They go out of the house and they begin to declare the gospel in all kinds of languages. It's incredible. In fact, right after this, Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people come to church that, or come to Jesus that day. you like, boom, you got to make a church. Just like there, today, okay? 3,000 people came to Jesus. Why? Well, because the disciples came out and were able to speak in tongues. A, a, a way to think about this word tongues, so it's not so weird, is other languages. Just instead of hearing tongues here, just say other languages. And in that moment, one usage of the word tongues was that they could speak in other languages immediately to share uh, the gospel of Jesus. I've heard stories about like legitimate uh, missionaries who have gone to other cultures and who have been able to pick up the language immediately. And they don't know how they did it. They couldn't train for it. There was no way to figure that out other than God miraculously helped them know the tongue and the language that they were a part of in that moment. This is a miraculous gift. A miraculous gift given for the benefit of the church. In all of these moments, when someone can... It's not magical. By the gift of the Spirit, when they can speak in other tongues, it's for the growth and the health of the church. Paul mentions it multiple times. It's for the edification of the church. It's for the betterment of the church. That's one type of the use of tongues or language. Another use of tongues or language is this... um, what they would call glossolalia, the tongue of angels. And we don't, we don't know much about it. That's the reality. We, we don't have more than, we, we have a little bit section here, but Paul doesn't unpack exactly what the gift of tongues and speaking in another language, the language of angels possibly is. What is it, like, what is, what does that mean? But what he is saying is that there seems to be in this church, and I would say I've seen this in other churches, more charismatic churches, that would say they have what maybe they call a prayer language, or where they're not speaking intelligible words, because they don't, they don't know what to say. You ever been in a moment where you're like, I wish I could pray right now, but I don't have words for that? You ever had that? Right? You're like, I don't have the words to pray in this moment. I've been around more charismatic people and the way that they've explained it that's been really helpful for me to understand is I say, hey, when I'm praying in a tongue, when I'm praying in the language of angels, I, I'm, I'm sort of babbling, but I'm praying so that God would just hear me and discern what I'm saying because I don't know how to pray in that moment. I don't know. My, my, my mind is unfruitful in that moment. So I, so I babble up upon to, to try to speak to God so that I may be edified. And I know people who, um, they practice this and they have the gifting of this and it's very edifying for them. I, I don't think we should, we should shy away from this. I don't think this is something we should go, oh, it's done, it's, it's over. I, I don't think we should be cessationist is the big word there. I think we should say, hey, th- th- wow, how, tell me more about that. 
Help me, help me understand more about that. How does that, how does that enhance your life and, and, and your, your, you being able to speak to the Lord? I know very, very godly people who believe, and they do, they don't just believe, they do have the gift of tongues. They speak in another tongue that it sounds like others to babbling, right? Um, but they're actually trying to speak to God. Their intention is to speak to God. It seems like that is the way that Paul is describing this here. And it's also been something that I've seen in a very healthy way. Um, I've also seen it in very non-healthy ways, but we'll get there, okay? Um, I also thought about this this week. So I, I was around some, some little, little kids this week. And we were having a dinner, and there were some little kids running around, and they are babblers at the moment. Right? They're babblers. They know what they're saying, though, don't they? Have you ever been around like a like an 18-month-old who's like, I, I know what I'm saying, you just don't understand, right? I mean, I mean, we see this in more of our culture than I actually think we do. Can an 18-month-year-old not talk to God? Just because we can't understand their language, are they not communicating something? Just because you can't understand someone's language, does that mean they're not communicating something? Paul would say, no, there's lots of languages in this world. And they all have meaning to them. And so we shouldn't shy away from these languages... But, he makes a distinction here. He says there's a better language than just tongues. And that is prophecy. Prophecy. So he says, prophecy is a better way. He says, prophecy is intelligible words. Prophecy would be this. I I think sometimes we think of it as being able to see the future. Okay? You ever heard that definition? Like, that's what prophecy is? See the future? Uh, I think a better understanding of prophecy is being able to see what is unseen. Being able to see what is unseen. Sometimes that might be future-oriented. Jesus was at a well with a woman in the middle of the day. And she was drawing from the well because she was living uh, a life that was um, uh, full of shame and disgrace. And Jesus looked at her. He loved her. He engaged with her. And then he told her, hey, um, I know something about you. I know that you have multiple husbands. And the one that you're living with right now isn't even your husband. And she says, guess what she says after this interaction? I can see that you're a prophet. (laughs) That's what she says. I can see that you're a prophet. You see the things that are unseen. And he brings her grace and truth. She ends up leaving and telling everyone around, hey, come see this guy that told me everything about myself, even though he didn't know me. He could see the unseen. Paul would say, I would rather you speak intelligible words about being able to see the unseen. So in their corporate worship, what they would want to do is they would want to be seeing the unseen. And I think this even happens in this context right here at Big Sky Christian Fellowship. be honest with you. We don't have prophecy time here, okay? I know churches that do that, right? We don't have prophecy time here. But I will say this. I have had plenty of moments with you where you have said to me or sent me an email afterwards and said, that was exactly what I needed to hear. And I want to just respond to you like, that wasn't me. Like I, Yes, I know some of what's going on in your lives, but I don't know much, right? I don't know that much. 
And it happens all the time, more often than you would think, where you're sitting there and you go, how does he know? How does he know? Right? The reality is, I don't know. But the Spirit does. The Spirit of God knows. In fact, I even, when I'm sitting here and praying in preparation for preaching a sermon, I pray for words of prophecy over you. I pray that God would even use my words, even if they're the wrong words, to speak to you. And I believe that he does. And so Paul would say, hey, prophecy is intelligible words that build and unite the church. Tongues can be profitable if they're interpreted, but tongues can also be very, very confusing. And because of this, they should focus us on something. And this is the end. They should focus us on the God who brings order out of chaos. Tongues and prophecy and all other gifts for that matter should focus us on a God who brings order out of the chaos. What then shall we say? Verse 26. Brothers and sisters, when you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three, or at most three should speak at one time, and someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker must be kept quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop, for you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone will be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of, the spirits of prophets are subject to controls of prophets, for God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. As in all the congregations of the Lord's people, women, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people, women should remain silent in the church. They're not allowed to speak, but they must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly Way. I know some of you want me to talk about women remaining silent in church. But I'm going to do better than that. Because here's the picture. Here's the picture. Paul is saying to you, you're out of order. You got people who are saying, my gifts are better than your gifts. I should speak, you shouldn't speak. There's prophets just getting up and, and, and there's people just babbling, babbling, babbling and people are coming in and they're getting very confused because cause like, what is all this going on? And, 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 and there's people who are like, I, this is a modern translation, but, but there, there are women who are like asking questions in the middle of the sermon uh, um, and, and, and they're just adding to a bit of the chaos. That's what's going on here, right? And, and there's just chaos, 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 chaos. I don't actually think Paul's giving, giving them a comprehensive list here, honestly. I don't. I think he's just describing, like, this This is the chaos. You guys think you're gifted? Great. You're a mess. That's what he's saying. You're a mess. Like, like you're, not, you're not good for outsiders. People come in and they don't feel safe there. They, they feel freaked out. 
Like they don't, they don't, they don't sense a God of order. They sense a God of chaos. And can we be honest? Man, we got all the chaos we need in our lives. We got all the chaos that we need in our lives. And so did they. We, we're, we've been reading this letter, right? How much chaos did those people have in their lives? Crazy chaos that we've been working through in this book. Just like the chaotic world that we live in. And Paul would say, listen, stop with the chaos. Stop it. You're a mess. Be ordered. Be holy. Be a place where people can listen and discern and love each other. Be a place where we love each other so, so well. I think Paul's painting this picture and saying, listen, we don't worship a God of chaos. We worship a God of order. Um, anybody doing any spring cleaning right now? Anybody? Come on. Somebody cleaned their garage a little bit this week, right? No? Okay. Bertha, you did a little bit. So I looked at my closet this past week and was like, oh, it's bad. It's bad. It's so bad. It's awful. And, and uh, so it started yesterday. I threw away and donated like a pile of shirts. Um, anybody collect t-shirts that you wear like one time and they're like, never wear it again, but it's still there. I have that problem. So, um, and, uh, so, so was going through all this. And at the end of the day, I looked at my closet and it was like organized. And I realized I had purple in my closet. Like some of you are like, why are you, you like, you're really dressed. Somebody said, you're really dressed up today. I was like, I just found it in my closet. Like, I didn't even know it existed. I didn't even know it was there. And I'm telling you, like, I lined up my shoes, and if you know my shoe thing, like, I like shoes, so it, it's kind of a, it's a, it's an issue, I'm working on it. But, um, and I, I just, I just got to the end of, of organizing, I thought, man, oh, I can just breathe. Like, that was chaotic in, in that closet. I can, like, actually see what's going on in there. I, like, find outfits that I want to find. I find the shoes I want to find. Like, that's really helpful. Genesis 1, God is, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, it says, or a translation could be the abyss, or another translation could be the chaos. And out of the chaos, out of the nothingness, out of the void and the abyss, He creates. And He does it systematically. He brings order out of the Chaos. Do you need some order in your life? I I, I do. I I look at my schedule and I look at what I've got coming up and what what the last month has been like and I think, man, it's just chaos. Think about some of the conversations that I have, some of the pastoral meetings that I have, and I think, oh, man, I'm not the only one. Do you need order in the chaos? Do you need quiet in the noise? See, this week is Holy Week, a week set aside to focus on Jesus. And I would say, Commit yourselves to order in the midst of chaos. Commit yourself to Jesus and to love. Not just in the midst of this week, 
but in the midst of your life. Heavenly Father, I thank you for leading us, guiding us in our time together. I pray, God, that your spirit would guide my language and my lack of language and my confusing language to make it hearable even now. I pray, God, um, that your words would even come to life in us this week as we dwell on them and as we think upon them. I pray, God, um, that you would continue to lead us and guide us so that we may be a church uh, that is ordered in order to focus on you. I pray that you'd remove distractions. I pray that you would silence voices that are other than yours. And I pray, God, um, for just a deep breath of calm, even over this town this week, as we reflect upon your death on the cross and you rising from the grave. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.